Hello, and welcome to the Blood and Oil podcast. Today, we meet with Dr. Jody Sun, who is a historical specialist in uh, Africa and specializes in China-Africa relations. Hello, Jody. How are you doing? Hello. Nice to meet you again after yes. some months. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's been uh, quite a while. Now, um, I think uh, your focus is on uh, the Cold War relations from China and Africa and post-Cold War as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And is there any uh, countries particular you focus on? Yeah, so for my own thesis, I'm dealing with Kenya and Zambia. One mm-hmm. East African country, the other is a Southern African country. So it's mainly a comparative lens of understanding Kenya and Zambia's relations with China throughout the uh, last 40 decades, like 40 years. 40 years, yes. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think read some of your previous research, and you were saying that one of the biggest problems facing this kind of uh, topic of study is that people tend to view everything as a big monolith, right? Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to talk more about that? Yeah, thanks for the question. So basically, when I started the project, it started out as the sort of understanding of China-Africa relations from a historical perspective. The reason why I chose this sort of methodology is I'm very much aware of the uh, literature on China-Africa in the past, probably about like two decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is a emerging uh, academic but also popular interest uh, about what China is and has been doing in Africa. But Mm -hmm. very much of that literature is a generalized, uh, oversimplified understanding of of China as either a neo-colonial player or mm-hmm. a um, altruistic, um, very much a friend uh, to African countries, which is, I think, very simplified uh, understanding about mm-hmm. the whole picture. So I think my project started out as to challenge that kind of claim. Okay. Yeah. And uh, which one do you feel I guess they're both very simple, right? But I, I think we hear a lot of uh, colonial, like neo-colonial narratives here. Uh, you know, if you read the British press, there is a you know a lot of claims that um, you know what this is happening in Africa is very much similar to what the Europeans did. Um, what do you find? Uh, do you find that to be the case, or is it you know true in some cases, some cases not? Yeah. I think I've been asked about that question like since ever I started the yeah. uh, the project. I think one question that people often assume is understanding about um, British imperialism as something a uh, a fixed project, or something simplified as a sort of uh, economic, political, cultural exploitation of the people and mineral resources mm-hmm. in that in that sense. But very people get asked about. Uh, British Empire imperialism in Africa as a historical project. It's actually, we have to understand the complexities about imperialism and empire building in the sense that even if we use the very simplified term as new imperialism, we have to ask ourselves, what do you mean here in terms of the standard empire building process, which I don't think there ever existed a standard empire building. Uh, and in that sense, I feel it's kind of kind of interesting to bring about the perspectives uh, in terms of understanding the uh, contemporary narratives uh, about why people think that China would, uh, you know, in, in a way look similar to what British used to used to do a hundred years ago. And in my own, own research, I think one particular interesting entry for people to think about is, for example, uh, firstly, uh, in terms of economic investments, in the sense that using a very much uh, Marxist dependency theory mm-hmm. that Africa became a a um, primitive uh, primitive market for providing uh, raw materials, mm-hmm. and in that sense, they tease out examples like Angola and, and, and Sudan uh, by saying that you know the reason why they could economically grow is because of China's sort of presence and taking exploitatively of the resources. But on the other hand, I feel like about that narrative is about understanding of neo-imperialism, neo-colonialism, whatever that, 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 that could be said, is that claim was based on the fact that the influences of the former uh, imperialist power has been in decline. Mm. In the sense of like, whose power has been challenging in the sense about this is always a pre-assumption that Africa has been a victim of external exploitation, let alone West 
or China. Mm. And China was simply termed as a replacement of the European colonialism. In that sense, I feel it's quite problematic because you actually underestimated the diversity and agency of African actors, not alone the African political elites, but also multinational companies, but also labor union and NGOs. So they're quite a complex local regional players on the ground that you can't simply say that this was a kind of exploitative uh, government to government or country to, go- to, to country, sort mm. of exploitative, unequal economic partnership. So I think that's the kind of first thing uh, I'm going to challenge uh, for the kind of problematic term, a symptomatic term of calling something as simply like neocolonialism. But I do acknowledge that the power relations between individual African states and China was not always equal on every single perspective. So that's why if you see about the uh, FOCAC meeting, that's the short term of Forum on China-Africa cooperation, mm-hmm. that China hosted uh, a multinational level of collaboration kind of conference in the sense to welcome uh, individual African head of states or senior ministers to come and discuss about various economic issues. Of course, mm-hmm. the meeting uh, uh, took a shift in between Beijing and other African African states. But at the end of the day, the, the agreement they negotiated was actually quite very much on bilateral terms. Mm. So this is quite different from what, uh, for example, Pan-Africanists would argue in terms of we need a unified regional strategy of dealing with powerful states, including China. I mean, powerful states, including uh, European Union, uh, US and Japan, all these countries included. But in the sense that African Union, for example, or regional uh, government bodies like ECOA, SADC, uh, EAC, all these regional bodies should deal with China as a, as a single unity. But this is quite different from um, the kind of initiative put forward by the, by FOCAC in the sense that it's a multilateral platform, but in terms of the deals, it's still a sort of bilateral terms. So I think in that sense, I would say the relative bargaining power of African member of states could possibly be constrained mm. uh, by that strategy. But I would definitely say that this is far from being of calling it like neocolonialism, because that was not going on a hundred years ago when British African company try to develop their uh, gold mining activities uh, in, in, in Wits or, or, uh, or, or Northern Rhodesia, uh, today Zambia, because that was totally a kind of uh, a deceased, uh, deceived uh, strategy of gaining a lot of resources and power there. So there was a very different kind of dynamics on both sides. Mm. Yeah. So you should say that now relations have a lot more agency to them and uh, it's hard to draw the parallels, right? Because people want something out of the Chinese yeah. presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess, uh, you know, you've studied uh, these relationships for 40 years now. And I, I think uh, in, in China, they're making a lot of waves about the uh, 70th uh, national anniversary. Mm. Uh, that's coming up, I think, in a week now in October. And uh, I, I re- recently read uh, there's, they released a white paper on China's place in the world, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the state council. And a lot of us been talking about the... You know, China's uh, as a motivator for economic development, and this is our, our place in the world, and it's been the continual case since you know 1949, which is a nice narrative. But uh, I, I think if we look at uh, the history in Africa, this is is quite different, right? Because the relationship started uh, not just about building bridges and uh, building telephone uh, infrastructure; it, it was a lot more complicated and political. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what would you think is the narrative there? Um, has it changed the dynamics of the relationship? Is it, uh, um, how has it evolved? Um, yeah, I would like to just, just say a little bit in terms of uh, maybe about the, the white paper thing or yeah. in terms of uh, China's overall uh, political strategy uh, in the world and how, Africa could be placed in that strategy. Yeah. So in my opinion, um, I think of course it's all started out as a roadbound initiative. That was part of the idea about building uh, a common, uh, what President uh, Xi Jinping has been saying in terms of these um, um, 
the construction of the destiny for the common humanity. So in the sense that this is not a a world order that could that was that used to be understand used to be understood by a lot of um, political theorists mm -hmm. as a kind of simplified realistic power struggle that mm. the, sh the change of world order from the sort of uh, post-Cold War order as the U.S. as the uh, superpower and then you have some multiple other powers and then now the emerging of China as the uh, uh, construction of the bipolar system. That's what a lot of new realist uh, theorists used to claim. But I think that the kind of construct uh, the constraints about using a lot of these theories to understand um, world order is you don't necessarily get to understand the nuances and also particularly the transition of that order. So you could possibly use a lot of theories to explain the, stat, uh, the static status of that order in terms of, um, you know, this kind of balance of power and then how it could have an impact on, on the peripheries, including Latin America, Asia uh, uh, and, and Africa. But in the sense that what China tried to propose, alternative understanding about the world order as it as itself as what I think is quite necessary to reflect about the bandung spirit in terms of Afro-Asian solidarity in the sense that it is to to we acknowledge the differences in your political economic systems, cultural, religious differences, but also we try to seek for a coexistence of mm -hmm. that dynamics. So in the sense that the understanding of China's for example, the rise, what we call rise, um, in the past, I think, like four decades, was very different from how European powers and, and, and U.S. Uh, rose to power uh, in the past. In the sense that the order that the current government is trying to uh, project and the so-called, um, uh, the sort of uh, um, road belt initiative, for example, is basically an idea about projecting a... If you see, you can call it like this kind of a, a influence or robust economic development model in the sense that China provided what was very much needed by these countries along mm -hmm. the Road Belt uh, Initiative, including Central Asia, but, but certainly also uh, Southeast Asia and Eastern Africa by providing what they would need is the infrastructure. But that was also in exchange for what China was lacking in terms of the excessive uh, production uh, in, mm. uh, in a lot of um, uh, steel uh, industry or that kind yeah. of heavy industry. So it's quite necessary uh, for China to build a sustainable uh, economic transformation. So in that sense, I, I, I could say that that was a strategy that China trying to diversify its uh, domestic uh, industrial uh, pressure and also mm -hmm. the labor pressure as well, because you've laid off a lot of heavy industries that the problem came in terms of how to deal about the, 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 the laid off workers and, and things like that. That could be uh, uncertainty for mm -hmm. the country's stability. So I think in that way, Robel Initiative and, and Africa especially feed into that picture. So mm -hmm. that was the strategy that China project itself in terms of a transformation and how when the sort of labor intensive industry uh, especially competitive advantage slowed down mm. uh, how do we deal with that challenge and that was the answer that was the strategy provided by mm -hmm. this government which i think it works quite well uh, for china but also for these countries who need infrastructure mm -hmm. so that's my understanding about the sort of white papers claim in terms of the motivation for economic development because that was exactly the sort of china's own model uh, mm -hmm. of economic uh, uh, development which i think could probably uh, provide some sort of uh, suggestive um, advice or things for national development for a lot of developing countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And if you try to tie it back to the history, do you think that these narratives of uh, what a country is trying to do in its foreign relations? Are they valid or do people, does the dynamic of the relationship just always change with what the goal of the country is at the time, right? So is it more, mm -hmm. if your country now, you know, is trying to export industrial capacity, so you're building infrastructure. Right. But is this based off of any historical line of relationship between two countries or mm -hmm. is it always mm -hmm. about what we need now so we exchange now? forget about what happened. Right. That's a very good question. And actually, that was a kind of uh, 
a worrisome scenario that when I started out, uh, I think about five, six years ago, when I yeah. learned about China-Africa relations in the first beginning, is I asked myself this question, if we withdraw the economic uh, kind of compatibility, mm-hmm. what do we have in terms of China-Africa relations? Yeah. So I asked myself that question uh, as a researcher, but also uh, as a person in terms of how do you relate to, um, to, 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 to people that are so different from you. And that's exactly where it comes that the title of my, my thesis is called Brotherly Strangers, mm-hmm. because we, we were all strangers at, at the beginning of the history. That mm-hmm. uh, Physically, uh, the distance was quite far, culturally quite different, linguistically quite challenging. But how do we call ourselves brotherly, like, especially after the foundation of the People's Republic of China? Where comes the friendship in the first place? Mm-hmm. But that's a question I must ask myself. And in terms of infrastructure, of course, the people, um, the first thing came to people's mind who knows a little bit about China-Africa relations is about the Tazara Railway, mm-hmm. which was a transnational railway built uh, in the 1960s uh, throughout the 1970s between um, uh, Zambia uh, and Tanzania at a time when South African neighbors, uh, especially uh, Southern Rhodesia, mm-hmm. uh, South Africa mm-hmm. had a very aggressive uh, attempt uh, towards uh, the uh, frontline states, the independent African mm-hmm. majority governments, including especially uh, Zambia at the time. So that was a infrastructure project financed quite at, at really like zero sum loans by Chinese government at the time. It's a good, it's a good gesture and good, uh, good favor in the sense the Chinese government didn't ask for an economic uh, uh, interests right mm-hmm. from from their project um and what i think it's sort of interesting dynamics in terms of what currently china has been doing for example in terms of the railway construction in kenya is it's, it was no longer a aid project in the sense mm-hmm. that the financing model has changed for, uh, substantially so it is a it was a commercial uh uh financial model in the sense that you had funding not only from the Chinese development uh, banks but also from the African development banks and some other totally like commercial independent uh, banks in the sense the financial model has changed uh, substantially and also uh, one thing is quite different in terms of the management role is Mm. previously when the project was finished China tended to hand over the project directly to the bureau that that at the time was called Tazara uh, Bureau was co-hosted by two countries. So China was not involved in any sense of the management process of mm. that project. But nowadays, for example, the Kenya railways they built, um, the Mombasa Nairobi railway, a lot of uh, emphasis has been put on in terms of how do we try to make the project sustainable and financially uh, uh, and financially sustainable. So China helped the management mm-hmm. of the uh, of the railway. So I think that was a substantial change if you see in terms of the economic uh, structure of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess then the motivations. Why why did they give that railroad as an aid project? You mean the Tazara in, Railway? Yeah, or back the, in the 60s. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Right. I think I, I didn't answer your, your, your last question in terms of the narratives. I, I forgot about it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say something about it and I totally forgot. Okay, so for the Tazara Railway, um, as I said, because it was not driven, it was not driven by economic yeah. uh, rationale. It was purely driven by the idea that um, according to the world uh, revolutional uh, sort of prospects, uh, the Chinese leaders at the time uh, strongly believed um, that uh, China has had the global responsibility of supporting other countries just fight against imperialist and colonialist powers. Mm. And in that sense, uh, Zambian faced the challenge, substantially that kind of challenge in terms it was basically subscribed by uh, uh, a lot of hostile neighbors, as I said, especially Southern Rhodesia. That was in uh, about the uh, that was the uh, unit 
uh, unilateral declaration of independence by the Rhodesian government, mm. trying to be to uh, to have an independence, but that independence only means that's for white people's government. Yeah, and deprived of the majority black populations voting and other uh, political rights, which was sought as a, a unjust um, and very racialized kind of policy by the world, uh, including China. So that's why uh, when Kaonda faced the challenge uh, of the hostile neighbors, that it could not uh, uh, transport its minerals, that was copper, uh, mm. in the northern part of the country through the southern Rhodesian railway. And mm. then you went through the port in South Africa. That was the main national, that was the main national revenue, like where the main national revenue ca- came from for that country. Mm. So when the Southern Rhodesian Railway was no longer val- valid, it had to develop alternative routes. And the other alternative routes could be Mozambique, for example, but also Mozambique was was still under the Portuguese colonial rule. Yes, until the 70s, right? That yeah. was, yeah, that was yeah. quite late in terms of, yeah. yeah. UDI was, was 1965? Still, yeah, 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 that's right. I remember from the song, there's a song about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the other alternatives, of course, is Dalai Salam route. So that mm-hmm. was the that was the kind of proposal when, at the time, uh, President Nyerere, Julius Nyerere, yeah. uh, had a meeting with uh, President Kaunda, yeah. uh, Ka- Kenneth Kaunda uh, of of Zambia. They were yeah. on good terms, and they agreed that we could start building a, a transnational rail between our two countries. Yeah. But the challenge was the landscape. That of the west, uh, the eastern province of Zambia that was bordering Tanzania had a lot of um, mountainous area. You know, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, the landscape was quite challenging to build a railway, and it was not considered as economically viable by World Bank and other financial international financial institutions, mainly the Western uh, financial institutions. So their answer was, it was not valid. It was not economically sustainable. So we could not fund the project. So that was a point when Nyerere proposed that probably we could ask our Chinese friends because he had good terms with mm. uh, uh, John Lai at the time. Yeah. So you can raise the issue. I raised the issue about uh, about it, and they could be potentially interested to do so. So that was the time when Kaonga went to China, meet Chairman Mao, and also a Premier John Lai, uh, and raised up the issue. And and uh, and Premier John Lai agreed that we could have a discussion about it. So the whole conversation started, and then in the end, the Chinese government decided that we should help our friends, mm-hmm. even if that was a huge economic cost for the Chinese population economy at the time as well. But this was for the good cause. Of course, that was should be understood in the sense about this was a very cla- a very typical uh, 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 Marxist states that you support liberation movements and, and you, you, you support um, third world solidarity. So mm-hmm. that was out of a political consideration rather than an economic uh, mm-hmm. rationale. So that was how the project started and throughout like uh, the late 1960s until uh, 1975 when the project was finished in 75. Mm-hmm. Would you say then in the 60s and the 70s that was the primary motivation, This uh, the ideological struggle then? Well, at least the ideological mm. motivation. Mm-hmm. We are Marxist-Leninists, and therefore we support decolonization. I, I think for that time, yeah. definitely it was more about political consideration. Yeah. It was definitely the, the, the sense that if we had the real way, we could solve the problem about a landlocked, uh, mineral-rich country uh, mm-hmm. uh, like Zambia. And also Tanzania was a good friend of, of Chinese government at the time. So in the sense that we created a a frontline state. So later on, that was called a frontline state against the um, uh, Southern Rhodesia and South Africa and, uh, and Portuguese, of course, these uh, we, we call hostile and uh, colonialist and imperialist powers. Mm-hmm. So that was out of the c- political consideration, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, was there also, I believe, you know, the 60s and the 70s is the ideological competition between the Soviet Union and China. Mm-hmm. For leadership mm-hmm. of communism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was a big, I think, um, priority within mm. at least the Maoist government. So, was that a consideration? Was were the Chinese hoping to mm-hmm. win over uh, Tanzania mm-hmm. and Zambia as uh, friends of China versus the USSR? Mm-hmm. I think if we have to understand in terms of Sino-Soviet uh, competition and in, mm-hmm. in the Third World, of course there are a lot of uh, books have been published by. 
people uh, like um, Jeremy Friedman, like mm-hmm. his main argument was that China was mainly a mouse China, of course, was mainly a anti. Uh, how to say that? It's, um, it's more like anti-imperialist power in the mm-hmm. sense that the struggle is against imperialist political. It's a political struggle. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not necessarily a economic struggle. Mm-hmm. But when the Soviet Union, uh, the sort of uh, standpoint about that clash is basically a um, anti-capitalist mm-hmm. uh, struggle mm-hmm. in the sense that we try to eliminate capitalist systems by, by socialist ways of, of, of production. So the emphasis uh, was necessarily quite different. Okay. So that's his argument in terms of that competition. The book was called uh, Sino-Soviet Competition in the Third World. So basically mm-hmm. it was an understanding about uh, how uh, Sino-Soviet um, state had an impact on individual <clears throat> third world countries and how it was wheeled uh, differently on the ground. So in that sense, the attraction, I think, um, from a lot of third world countries, including Zambia and Tanzania, was that politically and internationally, uh, they claimed themselves to be non-aligned in the sense that we didn't belong to any bloc. Mm-hmm. We didn't belong to either uh, Soviet bloc or, or the um, uh, United States sort mm-hmm. of capitalist bloc. And we could decide for our own way. Mm-hmm. So non-alignment is not a neutral positionality in the sense that we don't belong anywhere, but in the sense that we got a choice uh, to decide on which occasions mm-hmm. we can be possibly aligned, if you, if you have to call it in that way. Mm-hmm. So they had their own autonomy of deciding um, which particular sphere uh, that, that they could, I mean, all the historic event that it could make that particular nuanced decision. And in that sense, Soviet Union didn't was not of a great help for uh, uh, Zambia's economic development model. So mm-hmm. of course, Zambia tried to sort it out and sought for uh, economic help from both socialist giants. But in the sense that China provided the timely support for the Zambian government, for Kaunda's government. Mm-hmm. I could not say that uh, this was out of a competition against the Soviet Union or its influence in the Southern Hemisphere, because that was not the primary sort of focus of the Chinese government. So the Sino-Soviet split in Southern Africa was more evident uh, in the later stage, in the 1970s, especially uh, uh, in the sense of supporting different liberation movements Mm -hmm. in uh, Rhodesia, as in today's Zimbabwe, uh, in in Angola, and in Mozambique, uh, and also including South Africa. Mm -hmm. So that came quite late in the 1970s, especially after the the mid-1970s, and the uh, Soviet uh, uh, invasion of Afghanistan was also a turning point about how third world countries viewed Soviet Union quite differently. So that was a turning point. So at the time of 1960s, the Sino-Soviet split didn't have immediate spilled out mm-hmm. uh, impacts on countries like Zambia or Tanzania because that was not the concern. The concern was still, as I say, uh, the aggressive neighbors mm-hmm. in the South. Yeah. So I think taking it to the present now, if you go into the United States and you talk to some of the um, China th- uh, thinkers, they'll talk about how China is trying to mount an ideological challenge uh, to you know the West, and you know going tying this back to the history of uh, China trying to promote uh, anti-imperialist struggles within the African nations, and also having this political motivation to aid them. Mm. Would you say any of that is still present in? today's foreign policy, or is it more um, quid pro quo, we export some capacity, you pay us back interest, and you say some nice things about us Mm. in the international forums? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think ideology is quite an interesting, uh, it's quite an interesting dimension for in terms of my research, I talked about, for example, the ideology of African socialism. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of my, my, the the paper I I published is actually deals with the idea about um, how African countries 
uh, interpreted socialism, socialist ideologies at the time of ideological confrontation. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, the, a question asked in, in, in my paper was that in Kenya at the time when clearly its economic uh, national development proposal very much capitalist and encourage foreign investment, why the self still call it uh, African socialist? Mm-hmm. So you call it uh, session of paper 10 on African socialism. I think it's, it's basically at the time the sort of socialist ideology was appealing in the sense of encouraged um, a kind of equal distribution of resources in the sense that it could solve a lot of uh, historically uh, implanted problems in terms of create a lot of imbalances and mm-hmm. unequal uh, economic system during a colonial time where a lot of uh, profitable uh, businesses, including a lot of fertile lands, were controlled by the white farmers and mm-hmm. colonialists in the sense that black population were deprived of their rights. So socialism, in the sense that it looks quite appealing to a lot of poor uh, African populations that it could potentially solve mm-hmm. um, our development uh, prospect, it could solve the existing uh, unequal uh, wealth distribution. So that, that, that's why it's kind of uh, attractive. But in the sense that also I, I, I argued quite strongly that this is definitely not a scientific socialism mm. that was not a repetition of Marxist-Leninist theory because the challenge was a lot of African leaders didn't believe that African society traditionally was a class-based society. Mm. So they think that it was the European and Western power who created the um, these economic uh, problems in the mm-hmm. sense that now we have to retrieve back to our traditional African classless Mm-hmm. Society. So, in the sense that it argued very strongly for traditional values uh, in their okay. version of African socialism mm-hmm. about uh, self help, but also about collaborative uh, uh, ventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and good, uh, in Zambia case, it's also about good, good virtues as a Christian. So, it had also quite implicit, uh, explicit uh, uh, Christ, Christian values uh, mm-hmm. planted in, in that ideology. So what I think ideology is interesting at the time, at least that kind of African states so enthusiastic response to socialist core or socialist ideas in general looked quite uh, nice and friendly to, to, the Afri- uh, to, the, to the Chinese government, mm-hmm. who also argued for something similar, because in, in its own development uh, experience, China itself had socialist uh, 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 struggles in the sense we call it like the uh, national development plan and we also nationalize a lot of industries mm-hmm. and eco uh, distribution of some of the lands and things we had similar experience so in that sense i feel like there was an overlap interest uh, in terms of how socialist ideas could be appealing mm-hmm. to african states uh, at the time of the independence as time goes there was a change of ideology in china itself because mm-hmm. of decline of the um, uh, the Cultural Revolution and the radical leftist uh, ideas. So if you see in terms of what China has been doing after the opening up policy in, uh, since 1978, especially after 1980s, there was a, this, a kind of retreat of ideological claims when dealing with a lot of uh, third world countries, mm-hmm. including Africa. So China's uh, kind of ideological uh, attraction uh, uh, to a lot of China, uh, to a lot of African countries, have changed from being a socialist, triumphant kind of uh, uh, power to a country that could maintain its own political tradition, but also economically thrive. Mm-hmm. So that became the later sort of China model. So kind of understanding about China's economic success and also the political uh, robust robustness. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, ideology has been downplayed uh, in the 1980s for a long time mm-hmm. until uh, probably I think if you think about the, the, the Road Bell Initiative, there was also no longer mentioning about the sort of capitalist or socialist sort of con- confrontational because that was, I would say, there was no longer the attraction. There was no longer the kind of understanding about China's mm-hmm. economic model mm-hmm. anymore. 
So I would doubt in terms of these um, China thinkers in the U.S. when they say about ideological challenge, what ideology do they mean? Because what China has been doing in Africa in the past two decades, it's quite similar in terms of you know multinational company overseas operation, a lot of uh, trade investments, um, uh, and sort of cultural and exchanges, people-to-people exchanges and things, it was not necessarily substantially ideologically different from the West. Mm-hmm. So I'm quite curious in terms of what do they mean by the uh, ideological challenge in that case. Yeah, I, I would probably say that a common thing that people will bring up is conditionality of economic support. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, uh, if you look at Chinese loans, right? Um, even though they might be commercially oriented, some of them have pretty good terms. Or at least, you know, if I was running an investment bank and uh, or like a, a commercial loan bank, and I was looking at a lot of these loan applications for projects, uh, I, I would say, you know, th- these are huge credit risks and uh, probably not going to pay back. So the fact that the loans are going on at all seems to be... Uh, Almost a, a bit of a supporting, you know, um, a, a more supportive than just the, your standard commercial agreements. So in that sense, um, the West would say we offer these loans through our institutions, but then we want uh, you know a certain type of economic reform, a certain type of political reform, and the Chinese um, will say that uh, you can have this kind of same kind of assistance without any uh, other kind of condition and then that way it undermines our values mm. yeah yeah I, I think I think I have to say that the uh, the sort of double standards here in terms yeah. of if you see in terms of the uh, the risks of the debt loans and US government has probably the highest that's that, that that rate uh, mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, that was definitely higher than a lot of sub-Saharan African countries. Mm-hmm. But people will not put a finger and say the U.S. government was in a debt crisis. You only use that crisis, that term, to third world countries, to, to developing countries like sub-Saharan Africa. And I say call it double standard also because the fact that if there is a country that is doing differently from mm-hmm. the West and challenging the norm, the existing norm, then it becomes an ideological confrontation to the in the eyes of the in the eyes of the West, which I think is quite uh, hypocritic mm-hmm. because simply I think this is I say it's alternative uh, is in the sense of from a lot of perspectives of the, of the African countries, China was appealing because. It, it, the kind of offer it provided was simply very competitive. It's appealing and it, it directly deals with the sort of the, the, the kind of what, what is currently most needed in this country. That mm-hmm. is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That is, you, we all know in China, there's a saying that if you have to be rich, you have to build roads. Mm-hmm. And China's own economic development owe a lot to the uh, transportation and the sort of uh, the, the in the fact that the uh, the easy move of the goods throughout the country has sustained the economy in the sense of, of not only provi- provision of the labor but also uh, um, a kind of sustained uh, um, uh, middle class kind of buying power as, as well. Mm-hmm. And in Africa, that was exactly what is needed in these countries: the rise of the middle classes and the rise of middle classes to buy. A, a goods and also uh, develop economy in the most remote uh, areas of the country. So you mm-hmm. can't only rely on the uh, imperial, imperialist built uh, type of, re- uh, of railways in the sense that if you see about how uh, British uh, Empire built uh, railways in Rhodesia and Kenya, you can clearly see that the reason why they built this railway is the kind of shortcut way to bring um, Prim- primitive like raw materials for mm-hmm. for import uh, for for export in the sense that it benefits the British Empire but it doesn't really benefit the local economy. Mm-hmm. If you see the poorest areas of, of Zambia that was in the western province, there was only one national road between the provincial capital of West Province that's Lungu to the uh, national capital of Lusaka, mm-hmm. and nothing has happened in the past 
And Chinese government actually helped build part of that road back in the in the in the nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm. So the imperialists were not interested in building that road because there was nothing in the Western province to imp- to to export. Mm-hmm. They only cared about the good road throughout the the northern Copper Belt region to mm-hmm. to the to the southern Rhodesia because that was the main road to uh, to transport copper. So that was the limitation about uh, imperialist uh, mm-hmm. design, like railway design. But what China has been doing of connecting nowadays in Kenya, they're doing the phase two railway. That yeah. idea is to connect um, not only Mombasa, the port, the main port of Kenya, to um, Nairobi, but also Nairobi to uh, its western border. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, it will connect with Uganda. That was most needed because a lot of sub-Saharan African countries have cons- have been constrained uh, in terms of their interstate transport mm-hmm. and the interstate transport costs are actually even higher than some of the uh, the sort of Europe uh, to Africa sort of transport rate. So that was unbelievably you know a scenario that you think that it could cost more if you buy a ticket, for example. That was not real. I'm, uh, on the other side, I'm talking about, for example, airline. Mm-hmm. If you if you if you travel from a Western Africa kind of francophone country mm-hmm. to Southern Africa, for example, to countries like Namibia, mm-hmm. it actually costs more to, to have a direct flight because often the case you have to fly to Paris mm-hmm. and then change your flight. And then from Paris, you fly to, for example, maybe Windhoek in Namibia, the capital mm-hmm. of Namibia. That was because of the, the domination of the airline, the, the economic system that nobody has invested interest to develop that you know, cross-country, cross-regional mm-hmm. <laughs> direct flight, because it's it is no longer, it's not, not in the interest of the West to, to, to do so as well. So, you, I mean, from these cases, I, I was about to say in terms of the kind of, uh, what China has been doing in terms of providing loans for, uh, for infrastructure is exactly what these countries are in need. But of course, we have to bear in mind in terms of the potential danger of the uh, single, uh, uh, transport agreement in terms of we have to include more like multi partners to get involved on the table. Mm-hmm. We only talk about uh, we only talk not only talk to uh, the government representative, the ruling party, but also we are talking to other partners. I think that's a challenge mm. uh, for uh, Chinese funded uh, infrastructure projects nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, so I, I think that the challenge uh, is. If you say in terms of the way of doing things quite differently, mm-hmm. is a lot of these agreements um, were reached on a government level in mm-hmm. the sense that what happened for a, for a deal between a Chinese government and an African country is there was often a very much a state level meeting that is either. Uh, African head of state pay a visit to Beijing, or mm-hmm. that was during a visit of the Chinese uh, President Xi, for mm-hmm. example, uh, in that country. And they meet and they had a general idea in terms of what are the kind of projects we're going to fund. That was usually what the African countries raised the issue. Mm-hmm. So there was not China who dominated and say, we want to build that road. No, it was mm-hmm. mostly, and in, in, according to my knowledge, maybe all the cases were like single. African head of state raised the issue that we want to have ABC, like mm-hmm. single, uh, that kind of projects, and asked China uh, for, for, for the funding, for the help. And then they entered to the second stage of agreement that was between the most sort of Ministry of Commerce level. Mm-hmm. So they discussed about how that loan could be set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the sense that they always involve some sort of level of the development banks, either Axim, mm-hmm. Export Income, uh, Bank of China or, or um, China Development Bank. So mm-hmm. in terms of providing the necessary funding for that. Yeah. But that was also kind of a, they, they drew up a master plan mm-hmm. uh, and then enter the next stage in terms of who are the uh, constructors, mm-hmm. uh, contractors uh, for that project. Uh, and because of China's own funding, they turned to favor a Chinese contractor because a Chinese contractor could have easy access Mm-hmm. to funding. Unlike some of the independent multinational companies, they have to s- sort out their own funding. Chinese Development Bank have good terms with uh, 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 these constructors, uh, contractors, Chinese mm-hmm. cons- constructors. So they enter that stage in terms of that was on the construction uh, level of mm-hmm. agreement when the contractors have direct meeting and discuss in terms of physically how uh, that project could be drawn out and mm-hmm. carried out. 
So that was usually how a project has been has been involved. But what is quite probably looks quite different from what normally the kind of Western typical uh, agreement is that I, I, uh, on these levels I described the level of involvement of other part. Other partners, including, for example, regional, local government, mm-hmm. um, or environmental lists, or other labor unions, or things that was was quite limited, mm. because that was not on the on the table. The Chinese government would favor to deal with the official government and mm-hmm. let the official government to deal with their own uh, domestic partners. Mm-hmm. But that was that made a lot of. Uh, uh, for example, in Kenya, they made a lot of environmentalists quite uncomfortable because they pointed out the fact that the railway would cross the national park of Kenya mm-hmm. and that would create a problem for the movement, the free movement of the elephants and other big animals because, mm-hmm. you know, basically they had to cross some part of the park to get more water and, mm-hmm. and grass. So that kind of complaint was raised when these deals and things have been confirmed and then the feedback was that you had to change for the Chinese contract contractors to change the plan. So the current con- con- contractors managed to change the plan and create a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a technology I heard that was quite similar to the um, uh, what we had built uh, in Tibet. In terms, of we also allowed big animals to uh, mm-hmm. to to, uh, to to travel freely uh, downstairs the the bridge and so on. So they they, they changed the plan and include that bridge. But that came quite a bit late because you need that kind of pressure and feedback. Chinese government will not deal with every single, uh, uh, you know, this sort of independent partners mm-hmm. on the local ground because that was not what they meant to do and that was not what they're used to. Mm. So that looks quite different to maybe to a lot of Western uh, observers that Chinese government seems to only deal with the government as long as they agree something, you know, that was firm and that was it. I guess... If you talk about engineering projects specifically, um, when you do the scope of work and what you would design something like a railway to look like, isn't that more the job of the contractor anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it, is it the issue with the Chinese government or is it the issue that Chinese companies themselves are not very well versed in mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. to do public consultations? Yeah, I, I think, again, I think the the whole process I described have already... Um, argue very strongly the fact that there are different levels of mm-hmm. uh, engagements on mm-hmm. both sides. So it's not always... A lot of people say Chinese government, but what do we mean by Chinese government? Even within Chinese government, as I say, they involve military of commerce and probably China-run bank or Zimbabwe. And, you know, there are always like different ministry and different government bodies involved. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the eyes of the Western external observers, they, they, they all look Chinese, like they all belong to the, to the state, the, the basic <laughs> state, but it's not. It's yes, very yes. complicated. The case yeah. is, is the Ministry of Commerce could have something planned and then that was disagreed by Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. And that happened a lot of cases in, 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 on, on, the, on the local level. So, I mean, again, the, the problem of, about contractors is also, there's also competition of Chinese contractors. Mm-hmm. It's not always like this one single contractor could manipulate the process. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes even domestic Chinese contract, uh, contractors who compete for, for, for funding mm-hmm. uh, from Axim uh, or, or, or CDB or things like that. Mm-hmm. So definitely, I think, because of the, the, the particularity of Chinese economic system that is kind of a mixed economic system that you have both state-owned economy and also the kind of more kind of private money involved and it looks different to the West that everything mm-hmm. comes from China is is about the government but definitely it's not mm-hmm. as you say that the the contractors could have their own visions in terms of which materials they want to use mm-hmm. and how many workers they want mm-hmm. to employ on the local level yeah 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 I guess uh, that's, it seems it's a very moralized issue, right? Mm. The whole what China is doing in Africa. And uh, I, I think it gets discussed a lot more 
than let's say you know what China does in Latin America, what it does in uh, the Arab uh, world or uh, Central uh, Asia. Uh, um, why is this such a hot topic? Right. I I think yeah yeah that's very interesting. I remember Stephen Chan uh, from SOAS. Like, he he wrote this book, the morality. The title of the book is called the morality of China and Africa. Yeah. It, it it tells a lot in terms of why the arguments about China and Africa has been moralized a lot. Uh, in my opinion, as African historian, that was because of a fact that the history of the continent has always been told as a history of external manipulation and exploitation, mm-hmm. dating back to the uh, slavery, mm-hmm. then uh, imperialism, empire building, and then today's sort of uh, quite uh, unequal uh, economic uh, relations uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the globe. In that sense that there is always a, a kind of a pre-assumption that, that, that Africa was too weak to deal with external challenges, and it was always a victim of global powers competition. So that was the understanding about Africa and its place in the world, which I think is quite, it's quite problematic in a way, because a lot of these moral argument comes from the fact that African continent itself was sort of demoralized, uh, very much a dark continent that, that, that doesn't have any history. It has no contribution to the global uh, or human civilization or whatever, in the sense that that's why it's weak, that's why it's always victim and things like that. But the fact that if you see, especially the the, the, the sort of um, my research about the uh, the, the post independence uh, Cold mm-hmm. War period, that actually a lot of these countries actively sought out for aid, assistance, mm-hmm. and even political alliance from a lot of superpowers uh, mm-hmm. and Cold War players in the sense that they play the game, the balancing power kind of game quite smart in the sense mm-hmm. that we could ask for what we want and then we can even uh, compare the deals that we, we, we managed to uh, to get. And one of the examples I raised actually in my, uh, in my paper is the fact that uh, Odinga Odin, uh, Odin, that was a wise uh, Prime Minister of Kenya visited both Soviet Union and China mm-hmm. and argued for a deal, an economic deal. And what they did is for the inter-cabinet meeting is they discussed both deals and pursued the best one. At the time, it, it was China's deal mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it didn't uh, require uh, the, China, uh, the Kenyan government to buy compulsory goods from China, mm-hmm. which was the case for the Soviets, that yes. you have to buy all goods, mm-hmm. which is compulsory and, and was not desirable, de- desirable to them. So you can see clearly that these uh, African heads of state, states, they had a clear agenda and they know what, what they're, 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 they're asking for. But on the other hand, in terms of why China in Africa has been moralized, is again, I have to say that was because of the fact that based on the Western kind of perspective that China had nothing to do with Africa. Africa was our protective territory mm-hmm. in the sense that we had a history with them. What do we have to do with China? You're new and you know you don't belong here, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's still out of the fact that these declining Western powers still have to still want to have a have a crave, you know. Uh, 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 they have slices of pie of mm-hmm. these countries. They had this uh, vision that you know, even if we our power was in decline, we didn't allow other rising power to take over. Especially when there was a country who was doing better than us. So that I think is quite is quite hypo- hypocritical. I have to say mm-hmm. a lot of this moralized uh, kind of argument and. The third reason, of course, was the fact that China has been doing quite good. Mm-hmm. So that's why it posed very much a threat to the Western powers that, you know, you actually, uh, China be- has become the biggest trading partner of Africa mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, a lot of these historic connection with the West probably could be threatened by that. And in terms of political influences and so on, Africa has become maybe a, a home base uh, for, for, for China, and that's why they're worried. So I think when people ask this question, like China's as imperial power, why the moralized power, you have to ask, like, if China is a threat, then it's, it's threatening whom? Mm-hmm. China is not threatening Africa. China is threatening the West and threatening about the US. So mm-hmm. I think that's the sort of reason why it has been moralized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the presence on the ground, I guess, uh, how, how do, uh, I mean, I, I guess it would, 
differ vastly between communities. Yeah. But is there a uh, kind of general um, view on how the, mm. um, I think this past 10 years or so, very rapid growth of uh, Chinese influence on the continent? Yeah, that's a very hard question because again, as you agree that there is kind of a, a big diversity on the ground. Different sectors quite look, look quite differently and different countries quite very different dynamics. Um, yeah, but I think I think one thing is clearly that China's influence in Africa has expanded from pure economic uh, sphere to other spheres as well. In my in my own kind of research. Um, and expertise, I can clearly identify the attraction of the uh, people-to-people exchanges, including mm-hmm. things like uh, pop culture, things like uh, education, executive training. Um, scho- uh, Chinese government provided a lot of scholarships to mm-hmm. African countries. And also, as far as I can see, that Chinese government but not only the government, but also some companies try to start out uh, having a lot of uh, locally built uh, training programs for mm-hmm. the workers. Uh, for example, things like, uh, I think it's um, th- agricultural development between China and Tanzania has grown very fast. And a lot of people, as far as I know, experts in uh, uh, has been doing something about studying the agricultural, we call it like, technology transfer mm-hmm. uh, in agriculture and things like that. So clearly that's not only about money. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of something much deeper. Uh, and, the, the, and the engagement was on different levels. So it's not only the government, but also on the on, on, on university, uh, on company level, and even on person to person, to person in terms of interracial marriages. And a lot of uh, Chinese people who started out their own family uh, mm-hmm. in about this country. So that was a... I think quite a dynamic uh, situation that I'm really look forward to see after, for example, like 10 or 20 years, like what sort of changes can we make uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of like, for example, demographic change. Yeah. Yeah. Any predictions for the future? (laughs) Uh, I think uh, the prospects of uh, of Africa is important and strategic importance to China mm-hmm. uh, looks quite promising and I can see that in the in, in, in the in the future at least I think 10 or 20 years uh, Africa will become one of the important not only a destiny uh, for economic development but also more sort of as I, as I say kind of cultural um, exchanges and mm-hmm. understanding. Uh, and in that sense, I, I, I can see the prospects. And I have to point out in terms of the African studies in China mm-hmm. uh, has grown very fast in the sense that a lot of uh, emphasis have been put in understanding the um, local culture, languages and religion. So you see uh, increasing funding uh, put in terms of uh, putting a lot of not only the policy driven, uh, strategies and, and uh, papers, but also emphasis on having a lot of having the next generation of Africanists in mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of new uh, undergrad programs for uh, we call it like rare African ethnic languages, mm-hmm. like spoken in Mali. Um, some languages as like you know that was not really popular uh, on the continent, but still was being studied in China. So mm-hmm. I can see that. After ten years, you know, ten or twenty years, we're gonna have a new generation of Chinese Africanists, mm-hmm. and I think that could change the picture quite dramatically. So I really, you know, look forward to the to to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess uh, as a scholar of African studies yourself, and you know, in terms of people to people relations. Um, do, do you engage a lot with the uh, academic mm. community? Uh, I, I guess it would be Zambia and Kenya were your focus points, mm. right? So mm. do, do you engage in a lot of uh, in exchange with, um, I guess, their historians? Yeah, I think one thing I found quite happy about my publication is that after I published paper, there was one lecturer in the University of Nairobi who emailed me mm-hmm. and saying that he wanted to include my paper into the course that he has been doing about 
uh, Chinese foreign policy. Mm. So actually, he, 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 he did like, you know, read my paper and thought it was interesting and to include mm. it in the course. So I think that that's the sort of the main satisfactory, you know, where the satisfaction for, for uh, African scholar to be in the sense that your paper is not only read by your peers, mm-hmm. and most of the peers, as I say, actually based in the North, mm-hmm. you know, but also you, your papers are being re- read by local uh, researchers on mm-hmm. the ground, like Kenyan scholars, like they would be interested to read your work and include that into the, the, their reading list and so mm-hmm. on. And that could have a lot of yeah, that, that could have a lot of influences on their new generation of students in mm-hmm. understanding uh, China-Africa, not not from a Western perspective, but directly, you know, engaging and talking to mm-hmm. uh, Chinese scholars. In that sense, I feel quite happy and, mm-hmm. and, and proud. Yeah. And I guess, uh, do you still see then a bit of a divide in the academic communities within African studies? In yeah, that, of course. Uh, in your um, yeah. peer circle, it's mostly professors, I guess, uh, from... Uh, I guess, well, this is Oxford uh, we're talking in right now, so in Oxford, but also in uh, Chinese universities. Yeah. And yeah. there's then this own community of uh, historians in Africa yeah, talking yeah. amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's quite a good opportunity, actually, to have some big conferences to be as inclusive as mm-hmm. it can be. And last year, I went to the Brussels for the China-Africa uh, it's called CAC, Chinese in Africa, and mm-hmm. Africans in Chinese, the biggest, that's the biggest China-Africa research network. And we had, I think for the first time, I think one third of participants uh, from China and the other one third, I think, from Africa. Mm-hmm. So actually, altogether, it kind of uh, takes over the uh, the participant number. Because it was not the case three years ago, where most of the participants mm-hmm. are actually Europeans or, you know, Americans and so on. So I can see that the Africans and Chinese scholars are actually directly talking to each other. That's good. I so think. I think that's yeah. a really good sign to see. Yeah, things yeah. are changing and they're changing fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, th- thank you for the conversation. Uh, it's It's been really great to uh, talk through, I think, 40 years worth of history. 